0: a new year. We're in January and if you're anything like me, a new year makes you start to think about your business or your side hustle or your dream business or side hustle in a different way. I hope that you started this year with intentionality and a plan I hope you've got some really great goals on your agenda, some of them that are easy to achieve and some of them that are a bit more of a stretch, but I hope you've got something to work toward. One of the things I've found as an entrepreneur, gosh, it's been over 20 years at this point, is that having something to aim at, especially at the start of a new year, really gives me direction. It gives me a little pep in my step and some purpose to the work that I'm doing. And in order to know what that goal is and the direction I wanna head, I've gotta take time out to be intentional and think it through. One of the greatest assets in being a business owner or an entrepreneur, is having friends who are also business owners and entrepreneurs because nobody is going to understand what you go through the way another entrepreneur will. Nobody's going to be able to talk to you about marketing plans and budgets and contracts and legal issues and customer service and the whole thing. I get the best ideas ever from my fellow entrepreneurs and I hope that you've got people in your life that pump you up that give you advice, and that can understand exactly what you're going through. But just in case you don't, just in case you don't have a mastermind group of fellow business owners around you who can give you really good ideas, today's episode is for you. We have gone through hundreds of episodes of this podcast to find our top five pieces of advice from entrepreneurs, to entrepreneurs. The people in this conversation have all built multi, multi, multi million dollar businesses. And I don't mean like $5 million or $10 million. I mean, these are people who've built businesses and sold businesses for hundreds of millions. And in some cases, billions of dollars. This is a powerhouse group. People like Marcia Kilgore, who, as you'll hear in this conversation, has started and sold a million different ventures in the beauty industry. People like Tom Bilyeu who created Quest Nutrition with his team and later sold it for a lot of money. People who are specialists in marketing, people who are investors. Today's conversation is a little bit of everyone so no matter what business you're in there's going to be great advice for you but I hope that's really helpful as you start this new year and if you dig it pass the information along. Share it on your social media or send it to a friend of yours who is also an entrepreneur. Let's get the word out and get these ideas into the community. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. So
1: I had terrible skin when I moved to New York when I was 18. I was a personal trainer trying to make enough money to go to university because I was supposed to go to Columbia. And so I was a personal trainer. My skin got very bad. I learned how to give facials. Then I started giving facials to other people who wanted to pay me to do it. So I opened a really small little facial place. It was called Let's Face It. And I had that for two years and then moved into a bigger place and hired a couple of of girls, and we all did my technique of facials. And then I opened a spa called Bliss. And three years into Bliss, LVMH came and bought a majority part of Bliss. Um, and then I stayed for another five years with Bliss and had kind of done everything that I knew how to do there. So I decided to take a break. But I took a break for about six months and then thought I really miss the beauty industry. And I started another business called Soap and Glory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started another business in footwear called Fit Flop uh-huh. um, because I don't, I had this idea about a flip-flop that everybody could afford. I'm, I'm I'm, all about the affordable, right? Yes. Because I wanted something that would really help people with their posture and alignment and that would kind of make the most out of walking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I used to be a personal trainer. So mm-hmm. that still comes along. I always want to kind of be healthy and, you know, aligned and make people have a lot of energy. And I thought, well, if we do it as a flip-flop, everyone can afford it mm-hmm. <laughs> because flip-flops should be inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we ended up designing this technology that isn't that easy because there are three different densities of EVA inside the midsole, and it's kind of a a little more expensive than a normal flip-flop to make, but still quite affordable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then, let's see, I had Soap & Glory, flip Flop, ended up selling Soap & Glory to Alliance Boots Walgreens, Mm -hmm. who's all like one Mm -hmm. big, in 2000, and I'm going to say 14. Um, And was this in the UK? Yes. Okay. But... Soap and Glory is also uh, in Ulta now, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. and was in Sephora, mm-hmm. and so we had distribution in the UK, and the US, and also in Asia, and um, and then FitFlop is now in sixty four countries.
0: That's incredible. Yeah. So would you say that you are your thing is products versus building a business, or you think they really go hand in hand? I think they go hand yeah. in hand.
1: I like to build the community mm-hmm. because I like to make people happy, mm-hmm. so I try to. Build products that really delight people Mm because I feel like life can be so hard. Mm -hmm. And I like to also, you know, Bliss was really a a spa, but to make people feel good. Mm -hmm. Because I noticed that so many of my customers were, you know, A, having problems with their skin. When I solved that, they had problems with their stress. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to create a place where they could go. And it wasn't judgmental and it wasn't too fancy, but it was a great service. Mm -hmm. And they felt loved. Yeah. And they left just feeling elevated. Mm-hmm. And so people would literally book their appointments for two years in advance so that I they got their that. slot. Yeah. Right? So they had Tuesday night at six thirty and they were not letting it go if it was once a month. Mm-hmm. And you know they would they would try and swap with somebody else if they couldn't make it for some work reason or whatever i mean it, some people would even book every 2 weeks just so they'd have it and then they would cancel and we could get somebody in from the waiting list but wow. it was we we really delivered on that you know promise of relieving people of their stress it was supposed to be a holiday so you could you know not leave town but you'd get away yeah and so i guess every business i do is to try and make people's life better Mm -hmm. and so you know knowing that women love beauty products and knowing that they're just so expensive now Mm -hmm. and that even I don't want to buy them at retail Mm -hmm. beauty pie was kind of the one the culmination of many years of trying to build communities trying to make people happy trying to give them something better so it's an evolution of ideas um because I love doing the product. Mm-hmm. I mean, without an excellent, excellent, excellent product, you don't have a business. Yes, you're Anybody so right. can do average. You're so right. right? Shoes have to fit. Yeah, You've got to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. You, They have to be the ones that when you're packing your bag to go somewhere, you always put them in. Yeah,
2: that's right? so real.
1: And if you think about that and you think about also your moisturizers, your makeup, your whatever, you take the stuff that you know you can't live without. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I edit down. It's like, if I am testing this product and I have to give it back to the girls in the NPD department, mm-hmm. do I feel distraught? <laughs> <laughs> and if I do, I know it's good yeah, enough. Yeah, that's so real. Yeah, but everything else, like, you know, if it's average, yeah. i
2: bother. Yeah,
1: It's my best idea yet, but it is the <laughs> one where I actually had the, oh, my God, I'm terrified to do this. And then, oh, my God, I'd be terrified if I didn't do it. Yeah. So it was one of those... When I came up with the idea for Beauty Pie, and having been in the industry for 30 years already, which is probably what brought me to the point where I would be able to do this because I've got so many contacts, so much experience, I know how it all works, I probably couldn't do it before – um, but it was a really radical, disruptive idea that I had to kind of lean into because at first, my first reaction to having the idea to do a buyer's club for luxury beauty where it was totally transparent and we kind of unveiled all the smoke and mirrors of the industry was, oh, my God, everyone's going to hate me. Yeah. <laughs> and then I thought, but wait, millions of women are going to love, love you. <laughs> <me>. <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know what? What's really best for, you know, the majority of the people? who will experience this. Yes, there'll be some industry kickback. Some people will hate me for, you know, lifting the veil. But there are so many people who are going to benefit from being able to buy a higher quality product for like a fraction, I'm not even talking a fraction, but a fraction, a tenth of the price that they would normally pay at retail. So it's kind of my dream job now, Mm -hmm. having been in the industry for so long, to launch something that is just all about what I want to do and nothing About what I don't want to do. Yeah. Typical luxury beauty product and you spend $100 on it, right? Which isn't even that luxury anymore. Yeah. Which is kind of shocking. Yeah. It's very likely that it costs less than $10 or $8 to make. So typically in the luxury beauty industry and in the beauty industry in general, the cost of goods targets for product developers will be 8% of retail. Mm. And that's because if you're selling through distributors or, uh, you know, a large chain of stores that sells beauty – I I prefer to keep them nameless. (laughs) They'll demand between 65 and 70% of the margin from the get-go. And then you will also have to supply them with hundreds of thousands of free samples. And then you have to pay for free products for testing inside the stores. And then you have to pay for your team to go around and train all over the country and stay in hotels and train the store staff and then you also have to pay for advertising and then you have to pay to keep the lights on and then you have to pay for your ceo or coo and your accountants and all of that so all that gets built back to the customer right because all those margins get added in so when you make something for you know four dollars you have to charge 50 to make money and after a while I mean, it just isn't right. Yeah. Normally also what will happen is if you've got a really popular product and you're a big company, you'll think, well, we sell a million of those a year. If we can make 20 cents more, that's $200,000 more in profit. And so what you do is you go in and you squeeze the factory. They, they have to give you 20 cents off or 10 cents off or you make the product cheaper
2: yeah. so that you can
1: make more money. And, you know, I, I just realized this is not right. I mean, where you should start is with what's right for the customer Mm -hmm. and what she's going to love. And then just make the product that way Mm -hmm. and then show her how much it costs and show her how much she might be paying for this if it were a luxury product, but how much it really costs. And the transparency of it is so beautiful because you never have to pretend that you are anything but what you are. What you are, yeah. And the focus on being able to bring the very best to the customer is what it's all about. You know, I try and evolve. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the meaning of life is evolution. Yes. So if I have one idea, I try and learn from it. And then what I've learned from that, apply it to the next idea or the next idea and do as much as I can to make that even better. Mm-hmm. And so beauty pie is kind of everything that I've learned and then stripping out the part that I don't like, which is kind of that smoke, mirrors, fakery, telling mm-hmm. people that something's worth something when it's really not and just really... Being able to have this beautiful community where you surprise people all the time, and they can spoil themselves, yeah. but it's not expensive. Yeah. But it's super high quality. I mean, it's so delightful to receive a box of stuff when you haven't had to pay that much. Mm-hmm. You got to choose it, and it's all just world class. Yeah. It's really beautiful. The way the industry works, which lots of people also don't know, is that some companies have some of their own facilities for manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Um Most don't. Mm -hmm. So most of the luxury brands, uh, but I'd say mainstream luxury as as opposed to disruptive luxury, which Mm -hmm. we are, they all formulate with the same 10, 15 labs around the world Mm -hmm. that do the very best quality products. Mm -hmm. And those labs are third party. So they don't belong to any particular brand. They create beautiful products all year long. They have artisans and people who have been working on makeup, textures, and, you know, real – Experts who spend their whole day trying to come up with the most beautiful eyeshadow texture or the most incredible skincare texture. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are, you know, Japanese labs and Korean labs and the Swiss. And and generally, they're particularly good at certain things. So you'll find one lab that's incredible at lipstick and foundation, but Mm. maybe not so good with crayons. Mm. And then there are crayon suppliers, German suppliers are really incredible at crayons. So, you know, the eye crayons, the the lip crayons, the eyebrow pencils, um, there's a Korean supplier that's great with eyebrow pencils. So you have to kind of pick and choose and go around the world and mm. find who's the best at what, because they're not all coming from the same place. And so we have about 12 or 13 of these labs that we buy from. And, and the mainstream luxury brands also buy from them at the intellectual property. So the formula ownership is with the lab in most cases.
0: Interesting. So
1: when you go in, they might show you some beautiful uh, eyeshadow crayons, or but they show that to everyone. And then you just choose if you like it. I see. And then you put your, you order packaging, mm-hmm. and then you stamp your brand on it. Mm-hmm. And So for most makeup products, they're very, very, very similar. In all of this, we just think, how can we make this product so that it really works? We never think about the budget. Mm. And even if you then back out of it and you look at how much it costs to make an incredible, say, anti aging moisturizer, max, maybe twelve dollars mm. in the jar with the box finished.
0: That's amazing. It's
1: hard to get something yeah. more expensive than that.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So no matter what you put in it, you know, if you put more in it, it would become unstable. So you you then start to realize, ooh. Yeah, yeah.
0: So in your uh, career of of building all these different things, um, have you put stuff out and then refined it over time? I
1: try not. I try to get to the
0: very best Best that I can get it. Yeah. Right.
1: And and even ask for customer feedback before. Mm -hmm. Um, we very often will ask people uh, now because oh, so great to have social, right? So we'll post on social. We're thinking of making X. You know, product X or you guys, which products would you like that we don't have? And they'll tell us. Yes. And they'll say, okay, our next three from your list, because we always have our list, what we know we want to make and what we've seen out there that Mm -hmm. we think is going to just thrill them. Then we'll say, okay, from your list, you know, what, if you want us to make a makeup setting spray, for instance, Mm -hmm. what do you want to see, you know, how do you want it to be? What is important to you? what other ingredients do you want to see in it etc etc and they'll tell us yes and then we can go and build it to their specifications so it's great to be able to ask and get that feedback before
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, we ask people to ask us questions mm-hmm. about a particular product and then we know what they're looking for yes do not seek praise seek criticism mm. and if you seek criticism you will find out why she's not buying right or yes. what she doesn't what hasn't Flipped her over the Mm -hmm. edge yet. Mm -hmm. And then you'll develop something for her. Of course, it has to be within reason. Eventually, you have to make money. I mean, it's not a charity. Yes. Of course, everybody would love to do something if it's all free. yes, But in fact, weirdly, they don't. If something's too good, right? They think there must be a catch, and then they don't see the value in Mm. it. So it's all about finding that balance. But, you know, for people who have a product, you want to just take that, if you don't know exactly whether or not it's ready for launch, another really obvious thing to ask yourself is, would you buy this? For this amount of money from yourself, for this very reason, Mm. be your own customer, Mm -hmm. right? That's
2: so wise. Yeah.
1: And would you sell it to your mother? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And if you wouldn't, you shouldn't be selling it. Yes. And then go back to the drawing board. But I think it is important to get it to a certain level of excellence before you launch, Mm -hmm. unless Mm -hmm. you have a lot of money to lose. Mm -hmm. That's real. Yeah. Because if you get bad feedback at the beginning, you might not think whatever it is, is a good idea. Because you didn't execute it properly. Mm -hmm. And then you might give up on your idea, which might be a great idea. It just wasn't well executed. Mm -hmm. And there's so many things that just aren't well executed that could have done really well if somebody had paid attention to the details. I think mistakes are great, right? Mm -hmm. Because you feel them. Mm -hmm. And the pain of making a mistake, actually, I think it physically changes your it's either your DNA or your vibe or whatever it is, and you learn. Mm-hmm. Now, it's different. You know, a lot of people say, Will you mentor me, right? Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that you learn. I've had so many people ask me, and I've tried, but they don't listen to the advice <laughs> because it's free. Yes. But making a mistake is not free. So I actually think that making mistakes is so valuable. Yes. Because you, if it's painful enough, you don't make it again. Yes. And you never forget. And that is the best way to learn because people can give you advice, but there will always be your ego in there going, well, I don't know, Mm, you know. And it can be the, the most talented people. I mean, I listen to people's advice because I've made mistakes not listening to them. And I know how painful (laughs) it is. So now if people say, you know, you should do X, Y, or Z, I listen to as many people who will offer me advice and then kind of weigh it Mm -hmm. and then ask a lot of questions. But it takes a while to get to the point where you've made so many painful mistakes that you know that you should be listening. Yes. And I'm there now, but I'm 51, right? Like it took a while Mm -hmm. and I made a lot of mistakes along the way. And I hope I won't make them again, but even if I do then I won't make them the next time. Yes. It's just a part of your evolution. Yes. Yeah. I think once you understand what's necessary for a business to be successful – um, then you can do that in any category as long as, you know, if you're building footwear, you need people who know how to make footwear fit. Mm-hmm. You need to know how, where the supply chain, you know, you get those experts to help you. But it's more about understanding, I think, what has to be true for a business to be successful and have repeat customers yes. because no business is successful if people just buy something once. Mm. And that then comes down to, again, that product being great so it's having the elements that what has to be true about this. Mm-hmm. I guess one of them is that you have to have a real USP, right? Mm-hmm. So so what? Mm-hmm. What is cool about this? What's different about it? It's got to be different enough that there aren't so many different people competing already against you in your category that, you know, nobody cares.
2: Absolutely. And that's
1: number 1, yes. right? Cuz if you come out and you say, "Well, I'm going to start a sneaker brand." Okay. So why do we care? Yeah. Like there's a lot of sneakers out there. Yes. Right. Or jeans. I mean, there's a lot of jeans brands, Mm -hmm. but they have, they, you know, they struggle. They'll be really trendy. Then another one is trendy. What about yours is going to be different. Mm -hmm. And if you have a USP, then that's going to help you tremendously. Then of course it's about executing on that quality. And then I think being able to communicate all of that. Yes. That's communication is everything. I mean, the world breaks down. Relationships break down. Companies break down because people don't communicate or they don't know how to communicate. But almost any time you have an issue with a person or a business or whatever that problem is, if you break it down, it comes down to it hasn't – there's some breakdown in communication. And I always – you know, I've made – you know, talking about making mistakes, where I prejudged a situation and thought something was happening when it wasn't. And I've learned from that too that actually what I should do is just go clearly communicate and ask, hey, I'm feeling like this is like this. Could you explain from your perspective how you see it, right? Is this true?
2: Absolutely. Or am I just thinking this? Yes.
1: Right? And if I would have done that in those situations, it would have been better. I wouldn't have reacted the way I reacted. And sometimes, I mean, It was painful. And then I felt really ashamed of how I had prejudged a situation. And just knowing that feeling, of course, I wouldn't do it again. Mm -hmm. So, again, it goes back to the mistakes. Yes. But yeah, communication, great product, you know, a USP. Mm -hmm. And then you got to love it. You got to be passionate about whatever it is you choose. I mean, it can be, you can have many different interests and passions. Improving something, like a, you take a category and you make it better, mm-hmm. that's very motivating, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. you want to evolve, you want to do it better. I mean, nobody wants to go in and do it less good than the, the leading <laughs> yeah. people. Um, and, and just knowing that whatever you're doing is improving somebody's life, that's really motivating. You got to be motivated every day. So there are certain things I just couldn't go and sell. Yes. But I could sell an ergonomic, like an incredible ergonomic yoga office chair I could sell that <laughs> and I have nothing to do with office chairs but I know I would like an office chair where I can put one leg up and kind of stretch while I type yes I could sell the heck out of that yes. right and and I I was a personal trainer so I know all about the body and the alignment and I've got shoes that align you when you walk so that your ground reaction force goes through your knees and your hips so that you don't have that knee and hip and lower back torque I mean it's interesting it's better you know it, it makes it easy, especially on the hard days, because there's, yes. there's always a bad day. Yes. Where you just think, "Oh God," <laughs> right? And then you have to just think when you have one of those. Yes. I just need sleep. Yes. Yeah, and usually, if you could just make it through that day, right? I usually write three thank you notes if I'm feeling really horrible every single day. When no, oh, when okay. I'm feeling horrible, oh. when I think, "Oh my God." This is just a bad day. I'll grab three thank you notes, right, and write them.
0: What a great practice. Yeah,
1: because it's so easy. And then suddenly you're like, I am so lucky. You went from I am in the shit to I am the luckiest person alive. Look how nice people are to me. Everybody's helping me. I'm so grateful. And then you go on and you feel but you can get through the day. Then you sleep, you wake up, you actually feel fine. (laughs) And usually it's a better day. Like some other email comes in that's, you know, a bonanza. Yes. Yeah, so this is – life is like that, right? Mm -hmm. Life is – Full of ups and downs. And without the downs, you wouldn't really experience the ups. Yes. So you don't want to be like that. Yeah. You know, so boring.
0: I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. TravelTexas.com slash get your own.
3: I decided 12, I want to be a filmmaker. I go to film school, think I will graduate, get the three picture deal. It does not happen like that. I struggle to figure out how to break into the industry. I'm laying on the floor of my unfurnished apartment, wondering how on earth I'm ever going to make my dreams come true sliding towards depression, very frustrated, feel completely hopeless, Um, and just really, really a dark period in my life, I start reading about the brain, and I come across this idea uh, of brain plasticity. And it was a promise that just because I wasn't talented at that moment, which by the way, I wasn't, didn't mean I couldn't become talented. And that lifted this yoke off my shoulders. And I thought, okay, well, if I can put hard work into something and get better. I'm willing to do that. And so over time, that becomes what I call the only belief that matters. And my life can be demarcated between before I had that realization, which we would now, of course, call a growth mindset and after. And so I ended up meeting these two very successful entrepreneurs. I'd written a screenplay, got turned into a film. I was very unhappy with the final result and they said you're coming to the world with your hand out and if you want to control the art you have to control the resources so why don't you come with us and get rich we're starting a technology company and 18 months from now you know we'll we'll have just millions of dollars it'll be amazing i was like oh my god that sounds perfect let's do exactly that and so i started with them as a copywriter and it took like 15 years but it ended up working and so Through multiple companies, we start um, Awareness Technologies, which was the tech company. And that was where I showed up every day just trying to get rich, right? Just want to get rich. I'm here to get rich. And I would say that out loud to anybody that would listen. I'm just trying to get rich. And finally, about eight and a half years in, I was just emotionally devastated, just sort of ground into the dirt. Lisa was like, you know, you don't have a personality anymore. Like, what happened? And I was like, "All right, look, I promised you that I would make you rich, and there's a whole story with her father, all of that, yeah. of course. And um, I say, "But I, I need to feel alive, and so we're going to have to take some steps backwards. And she said the now famous words, "I bet on you." And uh, oh, it still gives me it makes me emotional now. And I went in and quit, and I gave back about two million dollars in equity and As it turned out, my partners felt the same. And they were like, hey, what would it take for us to keep working together? And I said, we'd have to sell this company. We'd have to build a new company predicated on adding value to people's lives. We'd have to build community. I would need to be able to be authentic. And all words now that are so buzzword that everybody takes it for granted. But in 2008, when I'm saying them, it's radical. Mm. And so they agree. And I had my eye on this thing that we now call social media, which did not have a name back then. And I said, hey, we can build real community using this thing. And so we went all in, building community and trying to uplift people. And, you know, Quest obviously ends up being this crazy rocket ship. And we took it from not existing to being valued at over a billion dollars in five years. And... Through all of that, I gained a far deeper why for wanting to be a filmmaker. And so, end up exiting Quest, Um, we sold it for a billion dollars, and needless to say, that's life-changing. And that gave me the uh, financial ability to build the studio. And now with my wife, as my co-founder and partner, um, we're setting out to make sure that nobody makes it to the age of 15 without encountering a growth mindset. And right now, in most of the developed world, your zip code is the number one predictor of your future success. It's not even your IQ, which I would hate, but I could at least understand. But the fact that it just happens to be where you grow up and you know, that's a, a lottery. And so I'm not okay to live in that world. And impact theory is is here to make a contribution to solving that problem. When you know a couple things, one, that people can change. And you know that You have the only belief that matters that if I put time and energy in getting better at this thing, that I can get better at it, then how you spend your time becomes a spiritual consideration because now it's, okay, I'm going to get good at what? How am I going to help with this? What am I going to do for myself? What am I going to do for other people with this thing? Okay, I'm going to elevate humanity. So now imagine you come along and you criticize what I'm doing. I'm going to ask two simple questions. One, are they right? Because they may have a better insight into what I'm trying to do. And then two, by taking that information or ignoring it, do I get closer or farther away from my goal? So that's all I'm asking. So it isn't an attack on me because my self-esteem is built around being the learner. So I'm just trying to learn. I'm not trying to be cool. I'm not trying to be awesome. I'm trying to learn and actually accomplish a goal, which is to make sure that nobody gets to the age of 15 without encountering a growth mindset. So now it's like, people can throw shade. They can tell me that I'm stupid. And all I'm gonna do is say, in what way? Because if you can remove those scales from my eyes and I can see more clearly how to execute on this goal that I care deeply about and have dedicated my life to, I want to know that. And so as long as I'm thoughtful about what I build my self-esteem around, then I can be open to that and and it looks like zero fucks are given, right? But the reality is I'm just so hungry for the real answer and I so believe in what I'm trying to accomplish that even if what you want is for my emotional devastation, I wanna hear what you have to say because when people come after you and I want everybody listening to this one, when people come after you, they come after you with real shit. Yeah. They come after you with the thing that they know is going to hurt. Yeah. They don't come to me and say, oh, Tom is a purple cow. They come to me and say, Tom has big ears because that is a fact. So (laughs) it's like, that's just, that's what people do. Right. And so if they're attacking your business, they're going to come at you with the thing that's actually a weak point. Right. And so if you can open yourself to that and say, hey, Rad, I'll take a good idea from wherever it comes, even if it comes from a hater. Yeah you can make me sound incredible, right? The success I've had, it sounds insane. And people hear it, oh my God, like I want that. And I'm like, no, what you want, you don't want my championship ring. What you want is my ability to become capable of a championship performance. Mm -hmm. Now, I would much rather become capable of a championship performance, meaning I'm working hard, I'm pushing my skill set, I'm constantly putting myself out there, eternally being the learner, trying to get good at something, make it to the championship and lose it because of something I failed to do well than to be on the bench and get the ring for something somebody else did well. So becoming capable of the championship performance, like that's that's the game. Now, whether you win the championship or not, honestly, like don't invest in that, right? You should be thinking about I'm a learner because you never want your self-esteem to be tied up in an end goal. That's not the way the human mind works. And to me, it just always comes back to how does the human mind work? You, everyone that hears what I'm about to say, will know this to be true. The moment the words leave my lips, as soon as you get to the top of a hill, you're looking for the next one. That moment of satisfaction is so short lived as to be hilarious. So you, you can work your whole life and say, as I did, Once I have X number of dollars in my bank, I will never, you know, do anything I don't want to again. It's the lie because by the time you get there, you've already emotionally moved on. And even if you haven't, that only lasts for a little while. And nature makes sure that you get back out there and that you keep hunting and gathering. So it's just a part of what we do. So recognizing that, okay, I'm only going to build my self-esteem around what I call the sincere pursuit. So I'm trying to build the next Disney. My value in and of myself, as I think about me, is not tied to whether or not I achieve that, but it is tied every day to whether I showed up and sincerely pursued it, meaning it wasn't just rhetoric, right? A cool thing to get PR that I'm like really actually in the trenches. I know what to do with the next 15 minutes of my time to get that thing, to actually move a meaningful step closer. Okay, so that's the framework for this idea of everything that I don't have, I don't have because I don't want it badly enough. Now, for anybody out there doubting themselves, well, okay, it's great for Tom. Like he can do this, he's special. I'm gonna give you a quote. This, this quote sits like the booze don't block don'ts. This one sits like a glowing ember inside my chest cavity. And it goes like this. You can't make a racehorse out of a pig, but you can make a really fast pig. <laughs> And my life is the answer to the question, what does a really fast pig look like? So I I am not special. My own mother quietly assumed I was going to fail when I left for college. My best friend said, oh, I just assumed you were going to marshmallow your way through life. That's a quote. My father-in-law said no when I asked for his blessing to marry his daughter. These were the people closest to me. They had not misidentified me. What they didn't understand though, was that I was willing to build drive into my life, but they met me at a time before I had it. So I had big dreams, but they were empty. I wasn't doing anything to pursue them. So once you understand, it doesn't matter where you are today. It only matters who you wanna become and the price you're willing to pay to get there. Yeah. Everything changes. Yeah. What I'm saying is I know how to acquire skills because the world moves so fast and changes so rapidly that the only thing you can count on is your ability and willingness to learn. So here's a stat that for anybody, entrepreneurs in the crowd, this is going to uh, unnerve you, or at least it should. Back in 1961, if a company made it onto the S&P 500, they would stay there for an average of 61 years. As of today, that's down to almost 12 years. Technology has increase the rate of change. Everybody can feel it. We all know what's going on. But when you're trying to build a business and you realize just how quickly things move, you realize you're building an empire on sand. And you have to be extraordinarily comfortable that I have to constantly keep rebuilding, 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 rebuilding. And the only way that this thing has persistence is because I'm constantly changing and adapting and learning. And so what I know, and because I told my team as, as we brought them on, so we leave Quest, this sort of loving embrace of a, a gigantic company with you know just obscene amounts of capital to being a startup. And I said, look, our job is to stay in business long enough for us to figure this out. And that's been the edict from day one. And so as you go, you begin to realize, okay, cool, I get where this is going. Uh, this isn't working. We're going to have to you know, tweak this and try that. And you do that enough, and it's never knocking your sense of self because your sense of self is entirely, I'm the learner. So having a big dream, the biggest of dreams, colonizing Mars, terraforming an entire planet, whatever, they are all simply proclamations about your ability to learn and galvanize a team around you or to be a part of a galvanized team if that's not a skill set that you want to acquire. And so looking at big dreams doesn't scare me in the slightest because I don't value myself for achieving it, only this sincere pursuit. I know that I can learn anything over time. And I know that I'm not going to do this by myself. And so it's a game of getting other people around me that can help me do this. And then the last part, making sure that the ride is joyful because only the ride is guaranteed. I'm not guaranteed to get to the destination. Okay. So it's like this really pretty simple formula that allows you to have the most absurdly audacious goals. And as long as you can marry that with business savvy, you can get there. I think a lot
4: of people get into business because they, they're looking for significance, right? They didn't have it at one point in life and they're looking for it. Um, I think I came into, into this world and I, I'd had six, like growing up, I was a wrestler, so I'd had success. I'd had significance. I'd, you know, I, I was a state champion. I was an all American. Like I'd had a lot of those things. And so it wasn't like, that was the thing I was craving where I feel like a lot of people get into entrepreneurship because of that. They're, they're, they're looking for the significance. Well, for me, it's like, I had that a period in my life and I enjoyed it, but it wasn't like, that wasn't the driving force for me. Uh, more so initially was security. I just met Colette and um, she was making 950 an hour her job. I was wrestling. So I couldn't get it and I couldn't get a job. So we were like really, really broke. And, I, but I wanted to be the provider. So for me, it was more like, I need to figure out how to make money um, so I can be a provider. So I, that was kind of my initial thing going into it was like, we have no security, like 950 an hour is not a lot to live off of even 20 years ago. Right. But that was kind of how I went into it. And then I remember going to, like, I, I knew I want to start a business online. I was going to these events. And what I found is one of two things. One is like what you talked about, that culture of just like there are people I was like, huh, I don't know if I would like necessarily want to hang out with these people. In fact, I remember going to events like in the room with these guys. And then afterwards, like, hey, Russell, like we want to invite you. There's a huge party afterwards, but you probably shouldn't come because you wouldn't feel comfortable. And I was like but, like, but you're invited, but just don't come. And I'm like, OK. like. <laughs> and I remember feeling like this, this weird like you guys are doing these good things in the world. But then after hours, you're doing these things that were just like. I don't know, that was like super disconnecting to me. Um, Or I go to business events where there are people in suit and ties and like, and I'm sitting in these rooms and they're sharing stuff and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm freaking out like in the back and everyone else is half asleep They're like, like, you know, and I'm the little kid in the back, like just, I can't believe we just shared, like, I want to tell everybody, but I remember thinking like business is so like, why do they make it so boring? This is like the most exciting thing in the world. And so, like as I was kind of developing this, I, like, those are my thoughts of just like this is exciting. Like we should make this exciting. Like I, if I'm going to become a teacher and educator someday, I can't make this the stuffy suit and tie. We're sitting in a room like boring events that that I was going to, you know. And I'd been to like these events and then and then then um, like a Tony Robbins event. I was like, how do you blend those? Like you have the excitement about personal development. How do you get excitement about business? Like it it can and it should be exciting. And then you know, big part of was I was very turned off by what a lot of people did and what they stood for. And, you know, for me at the season of my life, I came to this business. I just got married, my wife and I got pregnant, like, and I didn't want to lose that. And that was kind of, you know, just who I was. Other thing that I found that was really interesting. And I see this, especially in our industry, again, people who are chasing significance, they're always chasing significance. And I remember a couple of years in this business, I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to like, I don't want to put the spotlight on me. I want to put the spotlight on the art. Like, this is the art that I'm doing, right? It's so whatever is it is I'm creating, like, I'm putting the spotlight there. And as I tried to take the spotlight off of me and put it on what I was creating, I, I got more significance. I did a, I did a podcast episode probably six or seven years ago about this, where I was like, the the more that I tried to chase significance, the less I got, the more I, I, I didn't. And I just focused on serving people. The more, like, it just came to me regardless. Right. And I had a couple of people who, who I looked up to who I wanted to speak at one of my events. I remember one of them who I just looked at, I thought this person was amazing. And I, I invited him to speak and I said, yes, and I had him on the sales page for the thing. And, um, on the sales page, they weren't the number, like, it was like, you know, it was like Tony Robbins was speaking the first time Tony ever spoke. So I was like, oh, Tony's speaking. And then I had all the other speakers and he was one of the people in the speakers. And he messaged me the next morning, like live it. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Like, like. Like I won't play second fiddle to anyone, maybe Tony, but nobody else. Like I need to be, I am the keynote and da, 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 all this stuff. And I was like, I was like, oh, dude, like gross. this isn't about me or you. Like I didn't put myself on the page. Like I'm like, I'm there, but like, like, this is about our audience. It has nothing to do with any of us. Like I, I was just like, anyway. And so I didn't have that person speak. We ended up, you know, kindly parting ways and the person didn't speak. And look at when it was done, like, I, I remember like, You know, I serve, and you know, how it is. you do events like it's, it's exhausting. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of, and so we do the whole event. It's all done. Tony speaks last, he gets done, he gets off stage. I remember walking out just like, thank everyone for coming. And the entire audience was probably 3,500 people at the event, I think, um, stood up, they start chanting my name, which was weird. I was just like, super uncomfortable. Like, "Ah, like, please stop. But like, the thing I had is like, oh my gosh, like, I didn't try to get significance from this moment at all. I tried to serve the audience and focus on them. And because of that, I got significance. I didn't want, I was like, like, I, I don't feel comfortable with this. Like, please don't. But it was like fascinating. Like, like the more I, I, I seek for the significance, the less I get because of things like that. But when I'm just focused on the serving, then it comes as a byproduct. I think one of the biggest downsides of social media nowadays is that people can blow up so fast over stuff that's not real, right? Like you see beautiful women who Will post get nothing, and then they start showing more of their body, and all of a sudden, boom, they blow up and they're famous overnight. They didn't do right. the actual work, right? Or you see, and you see it. In, that's one example, but it could be anything, right? It could be you know the dude who rents a private jet to get the pictures. And all of a sudden, they now like, and so they get they get this the reward without doing the actual work, right? I see. Yes. It in, like,
0: yes. Yes, you're speaking my language right now. Like people who are like, I signed up for a marathon and I was like, yay for you. And I'm sorry that I am a jerk right now as a marathon runner. I'm like, but you haven't even started training. You just (laughs) got celebrated, but you didn't do anything.
4: Yes, and I think about like, and I've I've watched your story. Um, Obviously I didn't, I wasn't there during the beginning of your journey, but I've seen the videos of you on stage with your note cards, nervously talking. And now you see you on stage and you're just like, (laughs) on fire. Right. But like, I saw the videos of you when you weren't. And it's funny. Cause like um, at one of my last events, I showed some of my old videos from, from man, 15, 18 years ago. Cause I was not, like, I was, I would say like of the people I know, I was probably one of the worst, if not the worst. Um, like I was really bad, but I was so passionate about this business. And someone asked like, how'd you become successful, Russell? Like, or someone said, how'd you become uh, like the overnight su- success or something like that? And I was like, you don't understand. Like, I love this art. For me, again, art is the marketing. The like, I love this art so much that when I first started learning it, I started doing events. I remember running radio ads in Boise, Idaho to get people to come to an event. And I remember showing up to the hotel that I had rented and having two people in the room and being like, oh, crap, and doing an entire event for two people. And, and nobody cared, right? And I did that. And I didn't stop after that. I did another one and another one. And then I did another one and another one. And I probably did, you know, 50, 60, 70 presentations in front of empty rooms before anybody cared. And then I just got a couple people who cared and then a couple more and a couple more. And it wasn't, I mean, I was probably in 12, 13 years in before anybody else on this planet cared about funnels. But I was <laughs> preaching it to the empty hotel rooms over and over and over again because I cared about that much. I believe again, I wasn't sitting there with you on your journey, but I, I believe it's the same way from your writing, from your things. Like, and that's what people are missing. Like when you just all of a sudden you become famous overnight on Instagram or whatever, you didn't do that work. And so it's it's shallow, and you're gonna it's hard for you to sustain. Like I've been in this business long enough, 20 years now, I've seen so many, like the people come and go and come and go like every, every year or two, there's a cycle of like the new, you know, people that, that pop and then they drop and they pop and they drop. And the reason why I've been around 20 years, is because I'm obsessed with the art and I'm going to do it, whether there's people there or not, like if nobody right. shows up, I'm still going to write the book. I'm still going to do the presentation. I'm still going to do the seminar because I care about it that much. Right. And I believe you're the same way. Like you're, you're doing this, whether, you know, despite everything, despite you've had a season when people were like insanely, not like mean to you and you're still doing it because you're obsessed with the art and that's what people are missing was like, like it's, and I don't know how to get people into that because it's painful and it's hard. It's not something that's overnight. Um, But if you really believe in what you do, it's just, it's keep doing it and crafting it. And, and that's where you get the longevity from. It's interesting because I think most of us fall in this trap because a lot of it we're taught in school, right? It's like, I got to learn this and this, and like my kids right now, like they're trying to pass, this is finals week for them. So they're trying to study forensic and French and all different things, trying to learn it all. So we think like, we want to be successful in life. Like I got to know all these things, right? Um, But one of my uh friends, Dan Sullivan, he has a book called the who not the how, and it's really fascinating because he says that um, what most of us do is we go on this path, right? We start trying to, trying to have success. Like I want to, I want to, make a million dollar business or I want to whatever the thing is right and you start going on the path and all of a sudden you hit the first roadblock or question or something you're stuck and you're like okay how do I do this and then you're like well I don't know how to do it like okay well I got to learn this thing and all of a sudden you go in like now I got to buy a course and a product and a thing and then I'm going to study and you spend six months learning how to do that one thing right and then finally you learn okay now I know how to do that thing and you come back to the path okay I'm gonna keep moving forward and you start going to the next thing to hit the next like how do I do this like I don't know how to do this. So you stop. Okay. I got to figure it out. And we keep doing this thing, right? In fact, at my last event, we were showing, like, you know, for someone to build a funnel, like all the skill sets you have to have to build a funnel. And I was like taking, like, you know, to learn copywriting, you need at least this amount of months. And then for this, and like showing the pieces and and for someone to start and to actually have a launch funnel, if you were to to try to learn how to how to do everything, it was like seven years in actual time to become a master at all the things you need to do. I'm like most of you guys, like like you're going to run out of time or money before you ever get to the finish line. Right. And so the shift in mindset is like, instead of saying like, how, how, how it's who, 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 like, okay, who already knows this, who already has a set? who already is the person already, like this is their unique uh, ability where they can go and they can do it today. And so you start trying to find those, those pieces where they could do it. So if you're building a business or if you're trying to lose weight or whatever, it's not like for me lose weight, I don't have to understand how metabolic rates and calories and macros work. Like it doesn't matter if I know how to do, it. I just need to know who can like, Tell me how to do it and who can do it for me, who can set up the structure and the things in place. If I want to make a million dollar business, I don't have to like learn how to write copy. I got who knows how to write copy already that I can hire. Now I save four years of like becoming a master at something by giving somebody who already did that. And I can shortcut and speed things up. And, and in your reality, you go from seven years to build a funnel to you know 30 days or you know, five years to lose weight to we do it in in a in a quarter or whatever that thing might be. I'm shifting that right. from a from a who to the to the from a how to the who we can learn something from, from movies. So I'm a Marvel fan, but you think about like, like when, when in the movies, like uh, the Avengers, right? Let's say there's someone they got to conquer. So it's Thanos or it's whatever, like they got to do Like they don't go just attack the thing. The first thing to do is like, they assemble the team, right? Okay. So if we're going to attack this, we need a Hulk. We need an Iron Man. We need a, and they they assemble the people we need to be successful. And again, I think for all of us, it's like, what is the thing you're trying to go for? And it's like, okay, we need to assemble the 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 team. Uh, as you know, I've been, I told you earlier, I've been geeking out and going deep on Napoleon Hill and, and all the early thought leaders way back in the early late 1800s or early 1900s. And uh, Napoleon Hill in his book, Think and Grow Rich and also in the Laws of Success. And, you know, as I'm finding it, like, 12 other places, he talked about it, but he talked about um, with Andrew Carnegie, where I think it was Carnegie was the richest man at the time. And, and uh, there was a lawyer was interviewing him and and was trying to get him like, Hey. Uh, I was trying to stump him on these things and asking these different questions. And, and Carnegie like didn't know the answer, didn't know the answer. And after three or four times, these these uh, these learned men were like, oh, you're an idiot. You don't know anything. And he's like, you don't understand. He's like, I have a mastermind group of people in my proximity where any question you could ask, I can push a button and have the answer in 35 seconds. There's no reason for me to learn all these different things. And, um, and that was the first time Napoleon teaches this principle of the mastermind. But the same thing is true. It's like, building an Avenger team or a mastermind or your dream team or whatever, but it's like, who are the people that, again, who are all the who's you need in proximity to you to be able to be successful? Like when I launched ClickFunnels, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't Russell. Like I'm not that smart. I was like, okay, well, I, I, I'm really good at like the strategy of how to do funnels, but I don't know how to build it. So then I had to find a Todd, like Todd's my iron man. Right. And so Todd's the guy technically can do it. And I'm like, Hey, okay, well, I suck at managing people. I need a manager. And then I need someone here. And like, we started assembling, this team to be able to execute on on the mission and again that was for business but it's true in anything in life right like for example um a couple of years ago i decided that i wanted to start wrestling again and as a 40 year old like you're not supposed to wrestle because your bodies don't do that but i was like i want to do it and there's this old man wrestling tournament happens once a year and so i'm like okay, if i'm going to do this i can't look the way i i did or i'm going to get destroyed so i was like, I have to lose weight um so i found a trainer to make me lose weight and i have to get muscle. So i found a, a, a dude to lift me and i need to wrestle against so i found someone to wrestle and like to wrestle and then i I gotta figure out like the moves again like and so like i started putting together who are the people in my life that i need so i can actually achieve this thing because i'm not going to just show up on my own and and get destroyed in a singlet in front of a whole bunch of people like that's embarrassing right (laughs) um and so it's true to any part of your life it's just like okay imagine you got to go tackle this thing like what's your avenger team or your dream team or your justice league or whatever whatever version of that you want for yourself but who are the people? That you got to surround yourself with to be able to to do it and then on top of that it's like you said proximity is power like having them in, in constant conversation because it raises your it raises your mind right you're around right. the right people having the right conversations you think differently than if you're with your normal buddies who who don't think that way
0: yeah well and then how what do you say to people who are listening to this who are like i i am looking around my crew And I'm the smartest person in the crew. (laughs) I'm the most ambitious or I'm the most driven. And it's not to say that there's anything wrong with your peeps and you could have the most amazing family and friends, but if you want to elevate your life, you can't be the one that's most elevated, right? You have to surround yourself with people who are more successful than you in the way you want to be successful.
4: The first misconception people have is like, again, like I don't have access to these people. So when I got started, I didn't have access and I didn't have money either. So I remember like when I got into the marketing world and I wanted to learn marketing, I started looking and every single person had like these coaching programs that were $10,000, 25,000, like all these things. I was like, well, as a broke college kid, I got no money, but I was like, okay, I, like I don't have the resources to do it. So I got to become resourceful. Like what's the, like, how do I become resourceful? And so for me, I was like, well, what do I have value to them? Like I could, uh, I could try to interview them. Right. So for me, the first thing I did is I tried to interview people. And so, Um, I put on the role of I'm going to become the reporter and I'm going to interview people. And so I remember messaging these people and I was like, why would they listen to me? I'm a college kid. I got no skills. I have no platform. I have nothing. But what I did have was I was interested in them, right? And you'd be shocked at how far that goes, okay? So I think a lot of you guys will look at (laughs) Rachel or I and you're like, oh, they're so busy. They have all these things. And we are like insanely busy. We're doing a lot of stuff. But like, at least for me, most of the people in my world around me don't care about the stuff that I'm talking about right and so like when i get a message from someone on instagram or, or facebook or somewhere and i can't say yes to everything but they're like hey i read your book i'm obsessed like i think what you do is so cool is there any way i could pick your brain for 20 minutes or not sorry i hate that word pick your brain sorry can me I interview too you?
5: i hate that <laughs> No, leave
4: my brain alone <laughs> <laughs> but like hey i have a podcast i'm putting together can i interview you or hey whatever that might be right so for me i remember i was I was trying to learn affiliate marketing. So I, I bought, uh, at the time I bought the site, it was affiliatebootcamp.com. And I was like, hey, I'm doing this thing called affiliate bootcamp. Can I interview you uh, for this this course I'm putting together on how you do this specific thing, right? And for those who don't understand marketing, there's like a hundred ways to market your business. So I found one person who was, who was really good at like SEO and someone who was good at pay-per-click and someone who was good, this is pre-Facebook and stuff. So it would have been a Facebook person and an Instagram, right? But I ended, I ended up uh, picking these different categories I wanted and then I, I, I emailed four or five uh, experts in each of these categories and just asked them if they would be doing it. And again, four out of five people either ignored me or said no or whatever, but like I was able to eventually get one person from each category to say yes. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And so instead of paying them their $10,000 consulting fee, I got a 30 minutes or an hour interview with them for this product I was putting together, this course I was putting together. They didn't have any customers, but they didn't know or care. And I the first person and then the second person and the third person. And a couple of things start happening. Number one is I started getting like, I was, I was learning directly from these people. So like my knowledge started going up, which is really, really cool. I'm having a chance to ask them my questions. And so I started like getting like my question and answer. I started like thinking differently because I'm hearing them speak to me over and over and over again. And number three is that other people start seeing me. I'm interviewing this person and this person, and this person. And that, that concept of proximity is power is, is powerful in a couple of ways. Number one, it's, like you get to learn from them directly. But number two is like people see you in proximity with other people. It, it automatically raises your, your um, I don't want to say status, but like like your status yeah. to, to that level, right? And so today, if I was a starter from scratch today, like what I would do is I would start a podcast because podcasting is, is simple to get into, but it's really, really cool. And I would pick a theme, like let's say I want to be in personal development or I want to be in biohacking or I want to be in whatever you're, the thing you're actually really passionate about and then start messaging the people who are the best in the world, the, the authors, the speakers, the people who are trying to get their message out anyway. And you start having a chance to have these interactions with them. And that's how that's how it begins. That's how you start getting around a different friend group, right? Because I didn't have friends in the marketing world 20 years ago, but I started interviewing people and within, within three or four months. I was friends with all these authors, and these speakers, and I started getting to know them. Then I would go to an event and I knew who they were, they knew who I was, and we'd build relationships. And, um, and what was interesting for me is A lot of times, like the people at the top, like a Tony Robbins, right, did not respond to me for for a long time. But I found people who were like maybe one or two steps ahead of where I was, right? They had been doing this for a year. They had some success. They had a little bit of a following. And so I started interviewing those people. And then uh, I I would share, you know, after the interview was done, I'd be like, man, that was really cool. Like, who else do you know who who I could interview? And they would introduce me to someone else. And they introduced me. And and we started like kind of building these, these little friend groups. And what happened is that all of our businesses together all kind of collectively started growing together. It wasn't like, you know, me going to Tony and Tony promoting me an overnight, and my overnight success, right? But we talked about earlier, it's not like that. It was like, I put in the time and the effort and I was serving them and they were serving me. And like, eventually we were the, you know, we were the bottom tier of the, of the totem pole, but eventually we became the first tier and then we became the second tier and the third tier. And eventually, and this is literally happened for me, like four or five years into this business, Tony Robbins reached out to me. I didn't reach out to Tony. They reached out to me saying, Hey, we're seeing what you're doing. We have a couple of questions for you but it was because I was doing the thing. I was in motion. I was in momentum. Most people never, uh, they never get into momentum. And so they never have any success. Like for you, you got to like, I'm getting momentum. I'm starting a podcast or a blog or a YouTube channel or something. And then get in momentum. And then that opens up these doors for people and and conversations and things to where you can start building that, that friend group and that network. um, Because get it, it's going to be hard. In fact, I, I feel bad saying this, but, after high school, I moved to I, I moved to go wrestle, and I, I left my hometown. But when I go back to my hometown, it's it's really interesting to me that like most of my friends, um, I know where they're gonna be Saturday night. I know it's, mm-hmm. it's called Belgian Waffle. They're gonna be there. So I go home. I always go at like tenth. It's the only place that's twenty four hours in my hometown, and so I know they're gonna be there every Saturday night. I show up there, and sure enough, they show up, and we hang out, and we eat, and we talk, and we share good times. And then I realized that all of them are in the exact same spot they were twenty years ago when we were in high school. Right. Like none of them changed because they're like they're with the same people. And so you can you can love those people, you can be with them, but like if you really want to grow and have have the level of success and whatever it is, I don't care if it's business or health or whatever, like you've got to find the the group of people who are doing what you want to be doing and getting into momentum. And when you start doing that, doors will start opening, your skill sets will get better, and that's how you that's how you evolve.
0: To me, being healthy is really grounded in nutrition. national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
6: A lot of people, I think, are afraid to take that next step because of that, because they're worried about the failure, they're afraid to take the next step because they don't want to fail, but I look at it as what if you don't, and what do you have to lose like actually, what do you have to lose if you try, yeah, and tangible, like n- not just as a concept, but when you sit down and really write everything out, like I brought my journal, like I bring stuff mm-hmm. with me everywhere I go, and um, what do you actually have to lose? Write it out like I have my pride, I have. in the bank, and I can't lose it all. Okay, well, $50. Mm -hmm. You know, write that out what you have to lose if you take that step. And for me, what I had to lose was the building. Yeah. And it was worse what I had to lose Mm -hmm. than what I had to potentially lose if I didn't try. Yeah. And think that was for me. And that has really been one of the biggest things that has kept propelling me to take that next step is more along the lines of, what do I have to lose if I don't? Yeah, And that has been critical in failures and successes that I've had. And my successes are all people might see, but they only come because of all the failures I've had.
0: Yes, preach. and Love
6: that. That is so profound in the success of everything I do mm-hmm. because when we opened the store in 2010 – the neighborhood and friends came in and just shopped and started supporting it. We started breaking even within a month. Wow. We opened it with $3,000 because that's all we had. We mm-hmm. went to salvage yards. We went to, like, you know, wood farms and took scraps of metal and wood to build the fixtures for the store. Our um, counter was this old bar that smelled like old alcohol <laughs> that, you know, we we whitewashed and painted and my husband would come home from work and you know he'd be at work all day and he's a fireman and then at you know after dinner and everything at eight o'clock he'd go to the store until 4 a.m and build out the store because we had to yeah and that's the other thing is you have to be willing to take that risk but you also have to be willing to work for it yeah and that's a huge thing of what are you how hard are you actually willing to willing to put it and yeah. does that measure up with what you want your success to be absolutely and if they're out of line then you either have to be realistic with what you want your goals to be or you have to adjust how much you're going to put into it and looking back though it's so funny because it just it worked I had to make it work yeah. so we started kind of slowly climbing out of that massive debt that we had um, and then at the store is where I wanted to start something else I knew that this, I didn't want to have an online presence for the store itself because I had this inkling in the back of my mind that maybe I will do another online company. Maybe I will take that next step of really trying to grow another brand. And um, the lady that used to sew for me for all my slings, she was out of work now too. Mm. And I felt bad because she has five kids. And I reached out to her and said, hey, do you want some more work? She said, yes. So we, you know, put our heads together and she started making headbands for the store. Yeah. And that was where Three Burness really started. Mm-hmm. And I remember, uh, gosh, yeah. so
0: long ago so when I was a blogger, ago. I remember like yeah. my intern yeah. bringing me the headbands and being yes. like, look at this company, their stuff is so cute. I remember that ages yeah. ago. And I would
6: take all the photos diagonally <laughs> with like this super saturated filter.
0: Yeah. But again, you do at
6: work. So it didn't have a name, I just had headbands in the store. And they were selling really great. And I was like, you know what? What if I put just the headbands online? Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to do a website because this is when you had to have more hard coding. There wasn't Shopify or like some of these turnkey sites. And I was like, okay, Etsy. I can go to Etsy because they're all handmade. And I'll turn to them. So I went in, registered, and I'm trying to think of a username. Every I mean, it's like an email name, like yeah. everything's taken right, yeah, so I'm like, okay, so I have a tattoo on my forearm of three bird for my kids, so three birds in a nest. I'm like da, 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 three bird nest, cool, it's not taken, so there that's my username, how and funny. that's really how the brand name came about, and it's funny because hindsight, I probably would have named it something different mm. just because I would have tried to think of something cheeky or yeah, I don't know, something that seemed a little bit more I don't know that went along with what we were trying to do but yeah. it's been perfect. Yeah. And so that was really the inception and really where the brand started. And that started um growing. I focused on I kind of put everything that I knew that had worked for me before into action on photography on um you know keywords on you know looking at your competition and shopping see as if you were a shopper. I think that was the biggest thing mm-hmm. that I even tell people that reach out to me this day is shop it like you were one of your customers. And what photo would you click on? Because you have a one and a half, I think it's one and a half by one and a half yep. to show. You don't even have words. You yeah. have a little tiny square. And if the square next yours looks better, they're going to click on the one next to you. So you need to look better yep. than any other square. Yes, and it's all you need. It doesn't matter what's the rest so of it. Good. The little tiny square is like what you what you need to focus on. So that's what I did. And looking back, like some of the photos, like I probably would change. But again, yeah, it was taking everything that I had failed at, the things that I had succeeded at, and meshing those together and making them work. And the biggest thing that came out of the failure of the previous company I have was the humbling experience and the appreciation that someone earned a dollar and is spending that dollar with me. To this day, I, I am so thankful and so like over the moon every single time somebody places an order. I am so grateful because yeah. guess what? I've lost Everything Mm -hmm. I've been there where I've lost everything. I've been there where some of our customers who are have $20 to buy an outfit of the week and that's all they have and they want to look cute. I've been there, Mm -hmm. and so I don't take for granted any any cent that a customer spends with us for, and I will, I don't think that will ever change. Yeah, Um, November 3rd of 2011 is when I sat down on my couch and came up with the username. I had, um, product that I put up within the next week and for based on the research and stuff I had done at the time, you would get maybe one or two sales a week. And again, that was fine because I'm in debt. I, any additional $2 and I had fabric. So I had a gal that, you know, could sew for me and I couldn't pay her a lot anymore, but I still had fabric left over. I had the goods. I just needed to, you know, make something out of it. So, um, Within a couple weeks, I started getting orders and it's, you know, Etsy, if you have an app on the phone, every time you make an order, it's a cha-ching sound. Oh, yeah. And I could not, every time I heard it, I wanted to cry. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh. I But I wanted to cry because I saw debt going down. Yeah. I saw us crossing off a line on this sheet that we had written in pink highlighter yes. of stuff that we needed to accomplish to get ourselves out of debt. Every single dollar made progress towards that goal, mm-hmm. and it wasn't tens of thousands of dollars. But guess what? It wasn't going backwards. Yeah. So every single time that that you know it went to ching, it was like one more success. Yeah. So within a couple of weeks, I had about thirty orders a week. That's awesome. and to me, I, I couldn't believe it. And again, it was before the holidays, so I kind of took it for granted and was. Writing it off that oh it's just Christmas gifts and it'll die down. Well, a couple of weeks before Christmas, it was sixty orders a week, and I remember crying because I I can't not do this. Yeah, I have the store still. I still have three kids. My husband's still working full time. It's two a.m. and I'm trying to roll these headbands and package <laughs> them and figure it all out because I yeah. hadn't done um we we had a three PL doing all of our shipping before, so I hadn't done any of the logistics for shipping product. So trying to figure that all out and how you print labels and how you make sure you weigh it. Because if you just guesstimate, the customer may get, you know, have to pay additional on their end or you're overpaying. So it's that whole figuring it out as you go. And hopefully I'm not making as many mistakes, but starting to get 60 orders a week and I realized I needed help and got through the holiday so that was fantastic and got everything to everybody and then really January of 2012 is where I was like you know what game on I'm doing this like I'm not gonna feel sorry for myself and be oh you know I'm not sure if I'm gonna commit to this and you know I've had a failure before and I was like nope game on like 100% so ever since that it's been you know eye on the prize. And it's interesting because the one thing I did learn, not the one thing, the 1,001 <laughs> thing that I learned for from the previous, from Peanut Shell was have an exit strategy. Mm. And going in, in January, I told myself I had to know what my exit strategy was going to be. And that for me was um, selling the business. Mm. And, you know, we're selling the majority of it and, you know, really working towards what that was going to look like and then working backwards to making that kind of take place. And so that was what um, we started growing. So we added scarves and additional products to the Etsy shop. And that was really what I focused on. So what I looked at was a product that would appeal to a lot of people, including myself, but how would I, how would it appeal to me? Mm. And I wanted to make sure that my brand was a representative of me. I wanted to make sure that it was something that I enjoyed. I wanted it to be different and distinct. And I wanted every single thing that we did to people to know that that was my brand and taking that step, even from photography or the model or, you know, your language or your logo or the colors or the fonts and how you take your photos is so important because every single touch with your customer should be consistent.
2: Mm -hmm.
6: And it should be consistent from, you know, the font that you use in your email templates to the font that you use on any literature that goes out to your customer. Because if there's any inconsistency, it starts to cause confusion. Yeah. And for me, starting out, I knew I wanted to be a strong brand. I wanted it to be where I was proud of what I was putting out there. And I did not want to look at what anybody else was doing. Because that, for me, I am so squirrel-brained that I have to stay focused. Mm -hmm. And if I start worrying about what everybody else is doing or thinking or, you know, saying I should or shouldn't do it starts affecting what I'm doing yeah and I have to focus on what I'm doing otherwise I won't make any progress so with the brand and with three bird nest it was staying true to what I wanted the brand to be perceived as yeah and every day everything we were doing um, tried to kind of progress that so it was really important to me that we stood out but we stood out organically, yeah, and that was my key thing is I don't want to pay for um, subscribers, and this was still when you could buy, yeah, like email. yes, yeah. I don't want to pay for anybody. I want people to find us. I want people to know our story. I want people to know that they're important to me. I want people to come, I want them to love their product. I want them to enjoy it. But at the end of the day, I want my customer to be happy. And I want them to know that when they are buying something from me that they will be—they'll know that it's from me—and kind of that was the very kind of inception of it. And I went with what my personal style and my gut was telling me that I wanted to do, um, which was everything to me had to have a little something extra yeah like our headbands had to have a lace trim or you know they had to have a cool pattern or they had to be dual purpose or the scarves had to have lace and it was just I love I love texture and I love um, textiles and I'm very tactical and putting different patterns and fabrics together was really important to me and I couldn't look I think at what anybody else was doing I had to look and stay true to what I wanted to do and that was what my customer started responding to, but it's, but it's scary because what if I put it out there and no one likes it? Yeah, What if it's like, <laughs> oh, I think this is super cute and everyone hates it, but yeah. guess what? You're it, never going to know happen. unless you try. No, yeah. And you won't know. And you know, that was one of the things that I think to this day that people still love is our connection with our customer you want, if someone sees your image, especially if you're selling a product and especially if you're online, look at your, and you know, for everyone listening, it's look at your website or look at your literature or whatever's going out to your customers. Even as a realtor, I tell realtors this too, is your products and your images should have your spin on it. It should have something that you can identify with that is only yours. Yeah. And no one will be able to determine what that is except for you. But you have to be willing to take that risk to put that personal spin on it. But guess what? That's when things start taking off. Yeah. Because that's when you're different. Yeah. You kind of step out from the norm and it's scary and it may not be immediate, but that was one of the things for me is having Alexa in all of the images was huge. And she worked for me at Prim. So that was how it all started Got because it. it kind of started out of convenience. So she worked there. We would close the store and we would run into the back of the store and it had like a little backyard and we would take all the photos back there. How funny. And there was a tree where there was birds that pooped and it was like <laughs> this a <laughs> hot mess. But again, you, just you, make it work. you make it work. It is such a downfall and I've done it before of this is what I want to do. Versus, this is what my customer is telling me to do. Absolutely. Okay. Well, when whenever you go to this is what I want to do, and your customer is telling you something else, your sales are going to fall. Yeah. Or your you know your cust or your fans or whatever it is, they're just going to be like, well, this isn't what I want. So I started following what our customers were telling us that they wanted, additional styles, additional products, adding jewelry, and really growing that. So within a year, we were doing. I mean, we were selling hundreds um, per week. I wasn't going to be in debt again like I was before. But in order to do that, I had to pay attention to every single cent. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think, especially for listeners, is don't be afraid to charge what you need to charge to make money. Right. And know what that is. That's a huge thing is what does this actually cost you? If you're, you know, making a painting and you enjoy making the painting, that's great. But when you go to sell them and you have to start making them because people are ordering them, not just from the joy of it, that's going to take you away from other things that you're doing. So what is that going to cost you? Mm -hmm. What is the materials? And don't, I think people always have the tendency to round down, right? Yeah. Like, oh, no, it's $5. No, it's not $5. Yeah. And, you know, really getting to an idea of what your business is costing you to run. And are you charging enough? Yes. And being really honest with are you charging enough? Because if you're not, do not apologize for what you need to charge. Yeah. Yeah don't. Yeah. Because guess what? You're going to be the one that's going to be like me, $850,000 in debt yeah, and have fun coming back from that because it's an awful, it's an awful experience. Absolutely. So if there's a couple things, you know, for sure that, you know, I've really focused on as far as growing the business is, you know, really, really being true to who you are who your brand is and not feeling like you need to look like anybody else mm-hmm. look like you. And if you don't know what that looks like, figure it out. Yeah. Like, what do you, what do you want your representation of you to be? And what does that look like? You know, even forming a logo, I think a lot of people look out at a bunch of other people's logos and that's fine, you know, for inspiration. But when you go to a logo designer and say, Hey, this is what I want. It should be your words and your descriptions and sketches versus other images of other logos because that's what you're going to end up getting. Right? It's like one that looks like somebody else.
5: It really comes down to this idea of wartime and peacetime, and you know, peacetime is you know, I'd I'd say is kind of Google under Eric Schmidt was a very kind of peacetime. Company where they were trying to create lots of new ideas, empower people to innovate uh, these kinds of things, give them a lot of rope, and 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 that all is good if you have a monopoly position and you know you're a very strong position and you don't have kind of a burning competition or or some massive threat coming at you at the time. Um, but if you're fighting for survival, you end up in a different mode, and you know if you know the history of Apple and. And Intel, you know, those those two fought for survival a lot of the time, um, where the speed and accuracy of decision-making kind of overrides all those other things that you'd like to have as a manager. Um, And that kind of is wartime. So, yeah, you care then about really little details, and you want to be involved in positions. And no, you're not delegating that all the way. You need to review it. Um and you know and you need to train people on the battlefield. So if they're doing something that's gonna cause difficulty and you, you need to reset their thinking or reset the culture, like yes, you may sacrifice them for the good of the whole uh, in a Confucian kind of way. So um yeah, they're there they're they're different different modes, peacetime and war time. But culture is not a set of beliefs, it's a set of actions and which is kind of where the title of the book comes from like it's not what you believe it's not what you say it's not the values you put on the wall it's not what you tweet it's what you do it's
0: what you do that's
5: who you are as a company and a culture and how do you get people to do what you need them to do so you can be who you you know who you want to be and you know it turns out to be subtle and simple i'll give you kind of um one quick example that uh, we have. So we're, we're like relatively small, like a lot of your listeners in that, you know, the firm's maybe 180 people. Um, and as a venture capital firm, like one of the things, because we serve, we're in service of entrepreneurs, that's kind of the business. Um, you want every employee to treat entrepreneurs in that process and that struggle and that difficulty that, that you've been through with utmost respect, because it's a, and, and whatever, whether they're doing well or poorly, you at least have to appreciate how hard it is. Um, and we really wanted that in the culture. But that's a real challenge in venture capital because the behavioral dynamic that drives the way people actually behave is we have money, you want <laughs> money, you have to come to us to get the money. And then we get to tell you whether you got it. And so what that does to people's psychology is it makes them you know, think they're the big person and the entrepreneur is the little person. And so we really had to overcorrect to get people back to where we wanted them to be. And so one of the things we put in place in the culture is if you're late for a meeting with an entrepreneur, you, you are fined $10 a minute. And so what that does is, okay, you had to go to the bathroom, no problem, fifty dollars. You know, you, oh, you had a really important phone call. You were on no problem, one hundred dollars. And people would come to me and they'd go, well, why am I paying to work here? You know, that's not fair. Like you should be paying me. I'm working hard. I'm, you know, I have to go to the bathroom. Da da da. da. And I, and that's the question that I wanted because the question is what drives the behavior. Because then I say, look. I don't think you really understand how hard it is to build a company because if you did, you wouldn't be wasting people's time. You would plan going to the bathroom. You would plan that phone call, and I know you can do it because, like, let's imagine you were getting married today. I don't think you would be, like, five minutes late to the altar because you had to go to the bathroom. Yeah. I think you would have already gone to the bathroom. You know, like, so yeah, I know you can do it. And that kind of reprograms because every time you go to a meeting, meeting, you, you go, damn, why am I planning to go to the bathroom? Why do I have to figure this out? I didn't have to do this at my last job. And it's because, oh, I know why. Because it's really hard to build a company. And so that kind of gets it into people's nervous system. And that's these are the kind of set of techniques that you end up having to use to kind of move a culture from where it is to where you need it to be. We believe that the way you get good venture capital is the best entrepreneurs want to work with you. Yeah. Um, because unlike uh, real estate investing or stock picking or any of these other kinds of things, everybody doesn't have access to every deal Mm -hmm. so some firms get basically you know to use a sports analogy the number one draft pick every single year Um, and those uh, firms will tend to perform better and so your philosophy of in, in in our view your philosophy of what it means to build a company ends up being kind of the most important thing not only for kind of having the firm that we want to have, but also for kind of returns to investors. So, um, you know, other people have different ideas, which is, you know, like we have to maximize our money. And if you have a business idea and everybody thinks it's a good idea, it's probably the wrong idea because it's too obvious. If you have a business idea and most people go like, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard, (laughs) that you're actually more likely to be on the right track. And so much about entrepreneurship is betting on yourself and betting on your ideas. And now that doesn't mean you could just like, whatever, be getting high in your dorm room and like come up with a stupid idea. and Like, that's a good idea. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying like, if you've done all the work, you've thought it through, you really understand the customer psychology, you understand what the competition is doing, and you've come to some conclusion that is different than what everybody else thought, that's actually the best thing you can do. Um, So you know, you have to go with those ideas or you're not an entrepreneur. Or, you know, like, a, it's not a good... Like, politicians would be the worst entrepreneurs in the world because they care what everybody else thinks, you know. Yeah. And I think as an entrepreneur, you really can't care about what people think because they're going on conventional wisdom. They're going on very surface information. What does the crowd believe? da da And the... Entrepreneur has to be the contrary. They have to be the ones that come up with the breakthrough, the breakthrough in thinking that cracks through all that convention. And that's when you get really the, the most exciting outcomes. The mistake that people most often make in terms of kind of setting the goal too high, it, you know, it does have to do with budgeting. So you say, okay, I think we can triple revenue next year what do you all need to do that and then what happens then is you know you can end up starting a contest of you know among your team of okay who's got the most ambitious spend plan because they all have this incentive to kind of build a big organization and the thing that is dangerous with really really fast growth I mean there's multiple dangers but One of the big ones is communication breaks down. Another big one is culture, uh, where you're bringing in – if you bring in kind of more people from another culture than you have in your culture, you better be really systematic about how to integrate them in. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a different company than you had. Absolutely. Uh, And so those are – you know, So the, the, the kind of antidote for that is you go, okay, this is how much we're going to increase spending, and then this is what I want to achieve, and you've got to get your goal within that envelope. So you don't give them one without the other. You don't ask them how much they want to spend. You tell them how much they're going to get to spend. Um, and that, that, that process just works much better because you want people to get the goal by being thinking smart, not by throwing money at the problem. And so whatever you do, you want the incentive to not be to throw money at every problem. Uh, then the second kind of big danger is for kind of any entrepreneurial endeavor, the most difficult thing is, is I, I'm sure you know, is like product market fit. How do you get that product right for that market so it really grows? And, and entrepreneurs have done it, so they take it for granted But there are very few people in the world who can do that and so if you take on more than say one big new thing that requires product market fit like you can do a large number of things that add to your current product market fit but if you're trying to go for new product market fit you probably there, there may be one or two people in the entire company who can do that. And even at like a place like Google or Facebook, there's still only maybe a dozen people who can do that. Um, so it's a very, like that innovation capability is uh, always going to be scarce. And so I won't kind of go, okay, we're going to do five things like the thing we just did. Um, I think that's very dangerous. But if you say, okay, we're going to take the thing we just did and we're going to make it 10 times bigger... That's like a more reasonable thing to do in terms of scale.
0: The Rachel Hollis podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble.